0: One of the strangest things about Trump, I think, is that a person who speaks so much as an American nationalist actually represents the rise of a certain kind of European politics in the United States.
1: That's EJ Dion, Washington Post columnist and author of Why the Right Went Wrong Conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party and Beyond. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of the Monk Debates, and welcome to the Next Debate Podcast. The
0: trouble is that most of the debate on these issues... We are debating an obligation we are already committed to. It comes after you and it can haunt you. Any issue has caused me greater agony and anger. We are standing at the threshold of a great evolution. Very serious issues. Let's get to the point.
1: In a little over 12 months, Donald Trump has gone from a vanity candidate to the presumptive Republican nominee for President of the United States. What explains Trump's meteoric rise? And what does his candidacy say about the state and future of American politics? E.J. Dion, one of America's savviest political observers, is out with a big new book, Why the Right Went Wrong that Digs Deep into the Trump Political Phenomenon. Get ready for the future of American politics in the age of Donald Trump with E.J. Dion next on the Next Debate Podcast. E.J. Dion, welcome to the Next Debate Podcast.
0: Uh, great to be with you. Thank you. Let's
1: dive right in here. And I, w- I want to have you talk about the current scene in American politics on the Republican side, uh, Trump outperforming expectations. But do so through the kind of lens of your book and and what you're seeing here, if I'm correct, is that Trump is not an aberration instead, in your view, he follows in a long history, a tradition of how the Republican party has interacted with the country and with itself
0: um yes uh, that's true there there are three um there are three arguments in the book that um I think help explain uh... the rise of uh... trump the first sentence of the book is uh... the history of contemporary american conservatism is a story of disappointment and betrayal uh... and i argue that uh... since barry goldwater ran for president in 1964 and uh... Signaled the conservative takeover of the republican party uh... republican politicians have made, have to make a series of promises that they couldn't keep uh, promises to reduce the size of government, uh, which no president since that time, not Nixon, not Reagan, neither President Bush, has been able to achieve, uh, to roll back the cultural changes in the 1960s, and more recently, uh... in effect to change the ethnic makeup of the country uh, back to where it was say around nineteen forty or nineteen fifty these were not keepable promises but by making them over and over again uh... republicans disappointed their base and created a sense of betrayal uh, one of the striking things uh... in the exit polling in all the primaries is uh, voters were often asked has the leadership of the republican party uh, uh, betrayed you it, it's these are republican primary voters And in every state the question was asked, a majority said yes about their own leaders, and the people who said yes were much more likely to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, Secondly, um, the Republican Party has um, gotten the votes of white working class voters for many, many years and really delivered very little to them. And this is an argument uh n- made not just by critics of the Republican Party or conservatism, but by conservatives themselves, people like uh, former Governor Tim Balenti of Minnesota, uh who talked about the Republicans as the party of Sam's Club, or uh writers like Ross Douthat uh and rahan Salam, um, who argued that if the Republicans didn't start delivering uh... to white working-class voters they would be in a heap of trouble and that trouble is donald trump um, thirdly um the republican leadership over uh, during the um, uh... during the obama years um has really encouraged a kind of radicalism indeed encouraged uh... donald trump uh... when he was out there saying that the president hadn't been uh... born in the united states was ineligible to be president Um, And the line that's come to mind a lot in thinking about how the leadership ended up getting stuck with Trump is John F. Kennedy's famous line that he who rides to power on the back of the tiger ends up inside. Um, And I think the leadership of the Republican Party thought they could keep all this under control, and it turned out that they couldn't. And Donald Trump has at least for now, or seems at least for now, uh, to have taken over the Republican Party
1: let's talk about these, uh, your second contention there, these uh, white voters who are turning out in surprising numbers for Trump. Uh, Some would say, look, this is much more of an economic phenomenon than it is a a phenomenon that you can associate with a political party, per se, or with an ideology. Well, I think
0: that's partly true. Uh, Although I think uh, political progressives may want to read that in uh, a little bit more that might be justified. What I mean by that is that um, on the one hand, it is very clearly true that Trump's voters uh, disproportionately include working class Republicans, particularly people, uh, older uh, voters, particularly older men uh, who have been flattened by economic change, whose standards of living really have been hurt Uh, by the changes wrought by technological change and globalization. And so there is a very strong class element to the Trump vote, but that doesn't explain the entire uh, Trump vote. There's one study that shows that the average Trump voters' income may be as high as 70,000 a year or so. And so what are the other factors? The other factors certainly include opposition to immigration, including a trace of xenophobia um, or more than a trace of xenophobia, um, uh, you know, opposition to what Trump constantly calls political correctness, uh, you know, which is about racial reaction, which has been a force in the Republican Party uh, for a long time, not exclusively in the Republican Party, but there was a backlash voters have tended to go Republican. And so that's an important piece of it. Uh, and then there's a curious uh, strain of moderate uh, Republican support for Trump, or at least moderate conservatives who are left in the party. One of the arguments of my book is that moderates left the party in large numbers over many years. But these moderate Republicans are people who are not all that conservative on social issues. And all of Trump's opponents may have been much more moderate than he was in tone, uh, but they were actually very conservative on social issues. And I think these voters, particularly when he won those important primaries in states like New York, or Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, um, thought that Trump basically, whatever he said, was probably indifferent to social issues. And so I think one of the reasons Trump's um, rise has been so difficult to explain is he includes a number of strains of uh, opinion at the same time. Um, You know, the last thing I want to say is sort of relates Trump to what's happening elsewhere in the world. One of the strangest things about Trump, I think, is that uh, a person who speaks so much as an American nationalist um, actually represents the um, rise of a certain kind of European politics in the United States because Trump does not resemble traditional American political movements nearly as much as he resembles the uh, European far-right in the kind of coalition uh, that he has put together, this marriage of opposition immigration with uh, economic nationalism. Um, It's something you can see, for example, in the French National Front. Now, he doesn't have all of the baggage that the French National Front has, but I think there is this element of the European right that's crossed the ocean into the United States.
1: Well, let's play with the thesis of your book that that this latest kind of surge of Republican radicalism will end in disillusionment, disappointment, and anger once again. I mean, what explain to us what what you think the trajectory is going to be? How how fast could this all unravel, or do you think Trump actually has some legs here?
0: Um, I think there, you know, one of the differences between Trump uh, and Goldwater. Um, is that Goldwater had a genuine mass movement behind him. It, Goldwater was not just a figure in politics. He represented a surge of a new kind of conservatism uh, embodied by people like William F. Buckley Jr., the famous commentator, the rise of uh, Young Americans for Freedom in 1960, and a, what was an important uh, you know, conservative uh, organization. Um, and the Goldwater movement was young, and it had staying power. Um, Trump is much more um, a creature of the media. Uh, media he has courted quite brilliantly, but nonetheless, it's not. Uh, Trump does not arise uh, from you know a mass movement in the same way Goldwater did. There's parts of the Tea Party um, maybe there for him, but they were split in this election between Trump uh, and Cruz, and. Unlike the Goldwater movement, which was relatively young, uh, the Trump constituency is much more a movement of older white Americans who are uneasy with, um, you know, cultural change in the United States and the change in the ethnic makeup of the country. It's very significant that his slogan is, make America great again. Uh, And the again speaks to this as more a nostalgic movement than a movement uh about the uh, uh about the future now reactionary movements often do see themselves as movements about the future but i i think the, so the trump movement has uh problems uh i think in enduring if trump loses and you know the obvious question is uh can trump win this election um you know at this point no one uh in the pundit class will ever again say flatly there is no way Donald Trump will be president of the United States, although I am inclined to say that um, I would give him no more than a 10 or 15 percent chance of winning unless there is some external event that fundamentally alters uh, the political situation. Um, and the reason for that is, is simple math, uh, that his standing among women voters um, is very, very low. I think that ultimately women in the United States will prevent Donald Trump from being president and there is also a very large mobilization in the Latino community um, to register more of their voters. Uh, there's, there are reports of Uh, increases in uh, people taking citizenship so they can vote in the election long. People have been in the United States for a long time and never had taken citizenship. So he faces an enormous barrier because he is largely confined to the white electorate, at least at the moment, unless he does something to uh, alter that in a fundamental way. And Mitt Romney had already gotten 60, 61 percent of the white vote in the last election. It's not clear how much more Trump can get there, especially given that he's losing uh, so badly among women and um, you know among middle and upper middle class uh, voters. And in a funny way, Hillary Clinton is going to become the small C conservative candidate. She will, I think, to a lot of voters, look safer uh, than Trump. Um, His path to victory is if Hillary Clinton cannot mobilize younger voters who have been voting for Sanders, Bernie Sanders and not her in the primaries, um, and if uh, Trump can uh, really increase uh, to staggering percentages his share of the white working class vote. And the idea for Trump is to put states that had been reliably democratic, like Michigan uh, and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in play, and to carry Ohio. I mean, that is his strategy. He wants to blow up the old map. I just see an awful lot of obstacles in the way of that strategy.
1: You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is author and political commentator E.J. Dionne. Coming up, I ask E.J. to explain why the media underestimated Trump and failed spectacularly to predict he would become the Republican nominee for president of the United States. Debate. 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 The debate in this debate. debate. If you're enjoying this podcast, visit us at www.monkdebates.com for outstanding public policy debates on the big issues of the day. Hear Glenn Greenwald take on ex-CIA chief Michael Hayden on state surveillance. See Tony Blair debate the late and great Christopher Hitchens on whether religion is a force for good in the world. Read Henry Kissinger's debate with Neil Ferguson on whether China will dominate the 21st century. These and other great debates, free for watching, listening and reading, all at www.munkdebates.com. Just to talk a little bit more about the future of the Republican Party, because in your book, you almost describe this sense of these cresting waves of frustration leading to greater kind of radicalism and um, extremism in the party. So what comes after Trump? I mean, some people are hypothesizing that that the old Republican party you can 't put Humpty Dumpty back together again there 's going to be something fundamentally new that emerges what what's what 's your bet
0: one of the points I make in the book is that this uh, pattern of uh, frustration and radicalization um, uh, can be seen by a kind of steady ratchet rightward after periods of failure that um, when uh, you know Nixon won created a big majority, then came Watergate Gerald Ford loses. The party then moves to Ronald Reagan, which is quite, you know, several clicks to the right of Richard Nixon. Ronald Reagan wins two elections. George H.W. Bush wins one election, then he loses. And um, that is followed by the rise of Newt Gingrich. Um, And then George W. Bush loses, and that is, uh, you know, followed by the rise of the Tea Party. And now we have the movement to Trump. So the question is, how far... Um, you know how much further can this go, and I think if um, Trump loses, uh, this will set off a period of, um, if you will, to use an old Vietnam War term, uh, agonizing reappraisal on the part of the Republican Party. Um, you know, in my book, I, I suggest that conservatives might want to rediscover uh, what I see as the more moderate and Burkean conservatism of Dwight Eisenhower, um, that they might try to rediscover moderation as part of conservatism, very much as Edmund Burke said it should be. Um, Burke warned against uh, rage and frenzy in politics, and uh, Republicans and conservatives have been engaging in a lot of that these days. Um, I think there are Republicans who know that the party can't stay on this trajectory and remain uh, competitive as a majority party over the long run. Um, you know, the Republicans face two big structural problems over the long run. One is that young Americans, millennials, Americans under the age of 35, and particularly under the age of 30, um, overwhelmingly reject both the Republican Party and uh, conservatism. Um, And this is very different from the Reagan era when young people gravitated to conservatism. So they are not the movement of the future. And one of the reasons they are losing among younger people is because the country, the United States, is becoming more uh, diverse, um, and the Republicans have been very weak among African Americans, among Latinos, among Asian Americans, a group that once was quite sympathetic uh, to the Republicans. So they have to solve those, um, those problems, and they have the additional problem, as Trump underscored, as the Trump campaign has underscored, um, economic inequality is an issue that doesn't just bother Bernie Sanders voters, that doesn't just bother people on the left. Um, The fact of it has disturbed a lot of working class Republicans. Um, You know, they have not seen their wages go up either. Um, and they do not buy a uh, pure conservative economic doctrine on tax cuts for the wealthy or cuts in programs like social security or Medicare. Um, so I think at both ends, the party is going to have to um, and the movement are going to have to come to terms with these two big um, forces. Uh, you know, on the one side uh, to come to terms with social moderation and in an increasingly diverse country. Uh, and on the other side, um, the problems that many of their own constituents face uh, in a new economy.
1: Let's uh, circle back now to the question of the media. Um, you know, people have accused uh, the Beltway set, of which uh, you are a card carrying member, uh, to, that you're insensitive to the real dynamics in the country, and that uh, middle America's uh, suffering isn't uh, internalized by. Uh, The Washington and bi-coastal elites. Do you do you do you accept that critique? Do you think that was part of the reason the media so profoundly underestimated Trump's appeal?
0: I don't think that's why they underestimated Trump, but I do believe it's a problem. I've said for many many years uh, that the biases of the media are not strictly political; Uh, they tend to be the biases of the educated upper middle class. And so I've joked in the past. That the two people you don't want to be if you're a confronting a uh, journalist uh, is a union shop steward or uh, a an evangelical preacher, um, and so I think there is um, you know, and I, I think we have not done enough reporting um, on you know what has happened to a lot of people in the middle of the country. Um, you know, it's not you, we, we say the middle of the country, but in fact. There are plenty of communities on the coasts that have also suffered uh, in this new economy, whether you're talking about San Bernardino in California or my own hometown of Fall River, Massachusetts, an old factory town in New England that really has been hammered over a period of about 20 years. And there are a lot of places like that in America uh, that that uh, I think have not gotten the attention that they've deserved. You know, in terms of Trump, um, I think that the... Um, I have defended the press uh, uh, in their belief that Trump would not win the nomination because there really was something preposterous about somebody coming out of nowhere with no actual uh, political experience whose main occupation is being a celebrity. There's a great old James Carville line. That when you become famous, being famous is what you do for a living, and that's kind of what Donald Trump does for a living. And so there was a belief that um, the you know that the Republican electorate would eventually resist Trump, and uh, you know Trump himself has been quoted as uh, saying he never expected to do this well uh, himself. I, I also think that the Republicans, the other Republican candidates in this race, got involved in a kind of tragedy of the commons. In the end uh collectively they all had an interest in Donald Trump failing but in the early stages of the campaign they all assumed that Trump would eventually fail they wanted to pick up his voters and so they were reluctant to go after Trump uh and this allowed Trump uh to rise and rise without the kind of early challenge uh that might have derailed him uh, the best example is Ted Cruz who began the campaign Certain that he was the guy who was going to inherit the Trump constituency. And of course, uh, as and said all kinds of nice things about Trump, and eventually Trump turned him into, and I quote, Trump, Lion Ted. Um, and so I think that um, uh, I, I was kind of, um, I was partly surprised at, at the depth of, um, I guess the, the word is incompetence uh, among Republican leaders in trying to resist Trump.
1: You're listening to the next debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is author and political commentator E.J. Dion. Coming up, I ask E.J. for his take on what the rise of Donald Trump as a political phenomenon says about the future of American politics. Debate, 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 debates, the debate in this debate. 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 If you're enjoying this podcast, check out my exclusive interview with E.J. Dion in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Log on to www.globeandmail.com for thoughtful commentary and analysis of the issues and debates driving the public conversation. Again, that website, www.globeandmail.com, Canada's national newspaper. In our remaining moments, let's let's turn to the Democrats and um, what your book says about their strategy and their prospects in this campaign, but more importantly, going forward from here? And and specifically, do you think if they were running anyone but Hillary Clinton, they would be running away with this
0: race? Uh, It's possible that, you know, I mean, we will be, it looks like, producing uh, two candidates with extremely high negative ratings to run against each other. Um, You know, and this is... I think in contrast to say the Obama McCain race in particular where I think both Obama and McCain had relatively uh positive ratings um the you, there are you could imagine for example if uh if Obama could run for reelection would he be running away with this race perhaps but I think it's also important to realize that um Ideological, uh, you know, partisan polarization means that it's extremely difficult for a candidate of either party uh, to get much below 45 percent. I mean, if you look back, um, yes, uh, the Republicans in 1992 um, and 96 got below that. Got in. Got Bob Dole got a 41 percent in 1996. Uh, George H.W. Bush got 38, 39 percent. Uh, in 1992, but that was with Ross Perot on the ballot. Um, you know, since uh, 2000, um, the Republican candidates have hovered uh, between 46 and 49 percent, and the Democrats uh, have hovered <laughs> between, I think it's 48 percent and 53 percent. Um, so, I think uh, there is already so much guaranteed vote for the nominee of either party uh, that I'm not sure anybody, including President Obama, would be. Uh, running away with it at this point. But it is going to be, I think, a an unusually negative campaign because I think Trump knows that a lot of his votes, if he gets them, are going to have to be anti-Clinton votes. And Clinton knows that a lot of her votes are going to have to be anti-Trump uh, votes. I suppose the warning is turn off your television sets to American political advertising.
1: <laughs> it's going to be intense.
0: And just finally, if you
1: Think not just about your most recent book, but, you know, the writing and the reflection that you've been involved in now for a number of decades about American politics. Are you are you fundamentally optimistic about where your polity is headed and its potential? And do you think people are maybe overreacting in the moment right now to this this surge by Trump? And as you said, the prospect of two might be fundamentally unpopular Politicians squaring off against each other in an era of voter apathy, anger, and disengagement.
0: You know, I have uh, joked that I am a glass one tenth full person. That I have a I, I uh, believe in hope as a virtue and intend to be optimistic. I, if I may borrow from your politics, I really do believe in sunny days, and I think um, you know, ironically we have this political crisis happening at a moment when in fact the country is not in terrible shape. We do have these terrible inequalities. We do have communities that are suffering that need to be lifted up. Um, But when you look at America's recovery from the crash of 2008, we are doing rather well by global standards. Uh, People still want to come to the United States. You know, we, we, immigration is a big issue because people actually still want to come there. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, in the sort of constellation of power in the world, there's a lot of talk of American decline. But I think that uh, the United States has a lot of staying power in the world. So I think there are a lot of fundamentals about the United States that are still strong. But I do find it hard at the in the short term uh, to be optimistic about our politics, because um, you know the fact that somebody like Donald Trump could win uh, control at least temporarily of one of our major parties um, speaks to uh, some serious problems in the political system, some serious frustrations on the part of to part of voters and you know there's an authoritarian side to trump's rhetoric that I think is bothersome to people who are fans of liberty and democracy on both the uh, right and the left. It's fascinating that there are criticisms of Trump in American politics that come from progressives and conservatives that overlap. Um, and so I think that if we could get our politics straight again, um we the United States could be in for a fairly good run. Uh, if Trump loses I think there is a period of reflection that might put us on a different path, Um, but we're going to need some fundamental break uh, with the kinds of, um, you know, extreme divisions we've seen in the country, um, you know, pretty much since the Iraq war. Uh, And so I think we are going through a rough patch. And, uh, you know, I'm with Churchill, Americans, you know, who said Americans always do, the right thing after first exhausting all of the other possibilities. Uh, but at the moment, uh, we're spending a lot of time trying to exhaust all the other possibilities.
1: <laughs> E.J. Dion was my guest today on The Next Debate. For more of E.J.'s take on the state and future of U.S. politics, And the American conservative movement, be sure to search out his new book, Why the Right Went Wrong Conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party and Beyond. Visit the Next Debate webpage on www.monkdebates.com for the full transcript of this episode and my interview with EJ Dion in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Thanks for listening to the Next Debate podcast. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Chair of the Monk Debates.